oh, Pastor Chad, you know, a gifted preacher wouldn't need to work on those kinds of things. You know, it would just come naturally to them. And you're right. But the rest of us have to work on this stuff. So uh, I, in addition to trying to hear God's word and being encouraged simply just by the way the Lord has sustained me in faithful ministry here, um, and honestly just hearing God's word preached, I also want to be growing as we move forward together as a church. And, you know, doesn't God's word deserve it? Doesn't God's word deserve to be preached in a winsome manner? As persuasively as possible. As thoughtfully, engagingly, provocatively as possible. As convictingly and gently and compassionately as humanly possible. In a million lifetimes, no one will ever, certainly not me, will ever do the word of God the justice that it deserves. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. If you're an American Christian, chances are you have at least three Bible verses memorized. And I bet I can tell you what they are. They are John 3.16, Philippians 4.13, and then if you have a third one, it's probably Jeremiah 29.11. And if you don't have it memorized, you probably have it embroidered or painted on something that's displayed in your home. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. But uh, there's, a, there's something about Jeremiah 29 that has gotten a hold of the 21st century American Christian imagination. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Perhaps what you did not know about Jeremiah 29.11 is that it actually comes from a letter that Jeremiah wrote to Exiles from Jerusalem who were carted off to Babylon. In fact, Jeremiah 29, the whole chapter, is kind of like an Old Testament epistle. All right? So think about 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Peter. These epistles, these are the very same nature as Jeremiah 29. So imagine that Jeremiah is like Paul and guys like Daniel... Or like Timothy, okay? So Jeremiah 29 is like 1 Timothy, okay? Sent from Jeremiah to Daniel. Daniel and his friends and the king and all of his officials have surrendered themselves and been carried off to Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem to Babylon. And Jeremiah 29 is a letter the prophet is sending telling them, how are you supposed to live in this new place, in this new time your whole world's been turned upside down. So now what? And as encouraging as a sermon on Jeremiah 29-11, I'm sure would be on our first Sunday back after two months of not being together, we're actually not even going to make it to verse 11 this morning. The sermon text is going to be Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 7. Let's stand together as we hear God's word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem 
to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Amen. You may be seated. Jeremiah 29 is about being reoriented to a total new way of life. Imagine being ripped from your home, from your family, from your workplace, from your hometown, from your business, from your school, from everything familiar, transplanted to a faraway land in the center of idol worship in a capital city built by the boisterous and brash pagan king Nebuchadnezzar who is doing everything he can to change your language, the food that you eat, the books that you read, the things you study, the gods you worship, and even your name. Trying to make you forget who you are. And trying to make you into a Babylonian. Where are you? Why has this happened? And what should we do? In many ways, as we slowly emerge from our COVID-19 quarantine and survey the life that lies before us, we have the same questions. Where are we? Why has this happened? And what should we do? The good news of God's word is that Jeremiah's answers for the exiles 2,500 years ago are the same answers that are true for us today. Question number one, where are we? Jeremiah answers that one very quickly, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, to the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This morning we began our service reading from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Peter is pointing us in his first epistle back to Jeremiah 29 and saying, Look, guys, this is us. We're in Babylon. 
We are the surviving exiles. We are living in Babylon. This is the most orienting question we can ask in our lives. Where am I? If we fail to ask this question or we fail to answer this question correctly, it could have disastrous results for us in our lives. The first summer that Mindy and I lived in Louisville, we were having to make frequent drives back to uh, western Pennsylvania, to Pittsburgh, for various things, friends, weddings, family events. And uh, the thing is that you take I-71 out of Louisville, up the Ohio River to Cincinnati, across the state of Ohio. But the thing is, when you get to Columbus, Ohio, there's a juncture where you're supposed to get off I-71 and get onto I-70, which takes you across to Pittsburgh. Well, so Minnie and I are zooming along, and we go through Columbus, and we continue for several hundred more miles. And all of a sudden, I see Lake Erie. And I realize we're not in Pittsburgh. We are in Cleveland. So here we are, humming along, just heading down the highway, assuming everyone with us is also headed to Pittsburgh. But the truth of the matter is, we see Lake Erie. We realize somewhere we, we lost our bearings. We're not where we thought we were. The exiles had to realize where they were. They weren't in Jerusalem anymore. They weren't in God's country. The people around them were not the people of God. They were in a foreign land among foreign people, in fact, in a city destined for destruction. Brothers and sisters, we are not living in the New Jerusalem. We're living in Babylon. The danger is that you're driving in the same direction as everyone else, and you're basically driving the same speed as everyone else, and you assume we're, we're all headed the same direction to the same location. And it's too late before you find yourself arriving at Lake Erie. Brothers and sisters, the true danger when you find yourself living in Babylon is not that the king of Babylon is going to throw you in a fiery furnace. The true danger when you're living in Babylon is that you forget where you are. And when the music starts to play and all the people around you start to bow down and worship this golden idol, guess what you start doing? Bow down. And you worship along with them. Because you forgot where you were. America is not God's people. We, church, we are. We are God's people living in a Babylon. And this, once we wrap our mind around this, ought to totally reorient and change the way that we see the world around us. This ought to radically reshape the way we interact with the pundits and the social media and the politicians and the people around us because they're doing their best to make sense of what it means to live in a city that's going to be destroyed. And these are pagans who are seeking to persuade us to join them in their idolatry. 
Peter writes, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. In fact, they malign you. You see what Jeremiah realized about these captive exiles and what Peter is communicating to us in his epistle and what we need to realize today is that what Babylon needs are not Christians who join them in doing and believing what Americans do and believe or join conservatives in what conservatives do and believe or liberals in what liberals do and believe or South Carolinians in what South Carolinians do and believe or other homeschool parents in what homeschoolers do and believe but they need God's people to join God's people in doing and what they do and believe and have done and believed for thousands of years. That's what this town, this world needs from us. It's not for us to join them, but for us to join the people of God. Our imagination, our manner of life, needs to be oriented around the story of the gospel. People who know where they live are people who are with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And you know what? Paul tells the Philippians will be the result of those kinds of people. All of a sudden, Babylonians are going to realize where they're living as well. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. If you read through the Bible, it is amazing. It is astounding to think the things God has done through his people when they're in exile. Have you ever thought about that? Joseph saved the entire inhabited world from starvation while living in Egypt. Esther and Mordecai had victory over Haman while living in Persia. Daniel triumphed over the lion's den, living in Babylon. Jesus himself, the majority of his ministry wasn't done in Jerusalem. It was done in Galilee of the Gentiles. However, God will not do anything with the people who don't know or unwilling to acknowledge that they, in fact, are. In exile. Where are we? We're in Babylon. Which raises our second essential question. A question that I'm sure the exiles in Babylon had in their own minds that they didn't know how to answer. Why has this happened? Why? Well, verse 4 answers the question it's the first word the lord has for his people thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel to all the exiles whom i have sent whom i have sent into exile from jerusalem to babylon and in case you might think oh you know you're making too much of this maybe this is a fluke maybe the lord will explain this further look down at verse 7 the lord just reiterates this but seek the welfare of the city where i have sent you into exile. The second thing we have to realize, not only are we living in Babylon, but secondly, this is the Lord's doing. The Lord is the one who has put us here. The temptation for the exiles from Jerusalem after King Nebuchadnezzar has 
just stormed the city of Jerusalem and has, their king has surrendered and all the people and he just carried them off to Babylon is to think someone has, has, has taken over, has hijacked the story here. God's no longer in charge. Things are out of his control. The heir to David's throne is now a servant of the king of Babylon. Someone else other than God is writing the story now. The first word the Lord has for his exiles is this. Don't you even let that enter your mind. I have done this. This is my doing. Not anyone else. This is a matter of sovereignty. The king, king Nebuchadnezzar, he stands and he surveys his vast kingdom and he says, look what I have done. And the Lord says, uh-uh. I have done this. I'm in charge. And my people need to know that I am their sovereign Lord and King, whether they're living in Jerusalem or in Babylon. It doesn't matter. I am in control. Friends, the exile of Babylon is the worst thing that happens to God's people in the entirety of the Old Testament. But what the exiles didn't realize as they were being carted off is that God was actually saving them from the edge of the sword. Because a few years later, the foolish king that was left behind in the place of King Jeconiah would rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And guess what he's going to do? Come through, burn, slaughter, and flatten everything. And guess who are the only surviving Jews that are going to be left? The ones God took off to Babylon. The Lord says, I've done this. Yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar has come through. He's flattened the city walls. He's even looted my temple. But guess what? I'm the one who made him do it. Oh, pagan rulers, Pilate and Herod, along with all the Gentiles and the elders of Jerusalem, are going to rise up and put my son to death. Guess what? I have done this. No one is stealing the story from me. I'm in charge. You can trust me. It's for your salvation. Friends, a lot could be said about propaganda in this age of COVID-19. People are searching for answers. Why has this happened? Why are we here? Do you know what the people of God need to know above everything else? This is the Lord's doing. And we can be confident wherever we find ourselves. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You can know in the depths of your soul that whatever is taking place in your life today is absolutely necessary to make sure that your life is spared at the end of the days. There is no extraneous, unplanned part, spontaneous part of God's plan. What is happening is absolutely necessary to ensure that all the saints of God are saved to sin no more. This is the Lord's doing. So if we are in Babylon and we know the Lord has done this, then the third question is, well, what are we supposed to do here? What shall we do? Jeremiah makes it very simple. He begins with these 
simple commands in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What shall we do? Jeremiah gives us several commands, but then in verse 7, he really undergirds all of it with this, this unifying command that ought to direct everything in our focus in doing the others. Sort of wraps them all together. He says, seek the welfare of the city. That's what you should do. Seek the welfare, the peace, the prosperity, the shalom, the wellness, the wholeness. Seek the welfare of the city. Let me tell you, this is the opposite of what the exiles want to hear. They don't want to build houses in Babylon. They don't want to get married in Babylon. They don't want to start new businesses in Babylon. They want to go back to Jerusalem. They long for the city of God, the dwelling of God with man. They long for restoration and an end to injustice and a reign of righteousness. They long for the return of the king. On top of that, this seems pretty nonsensical because the prophet Isaiah, 150 years before, prophesied that Babylon was going to be destroyed. So what is the point of building houses and businesses and getting married and seeking the prosperity of a city that's going to burn with fire? What is the point of seeking the welfare of a city doomed for destruction? Well, maybe we ought to ask God, the God who so loved the world, a world doomed to be destroyed, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish along with the world and have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, if God so loved the world, if he loved the world in this way, we should too. What shall we do? Seek the welfare of the city. And when we allow this to become the overarching, the undergirding motive of all of these other little commands, it sort of reshapes the way that we see all of these other commands. Think about it. Verse 5. Build houses and dwell in them. How do we build houses? How do we put together homes that are for the welfare of the city? All of a sudden we realize the home that I'm building is not a compound that I need to build a wall around to keep Babylon out. No, my home is a place for the citizens of Babylon to finally come in and sit on a couch and experience forgiveness and love for the first time. My table is a place for lost college students to come and to eat and to be fed and to experience family. My yard is a place for children from broken homes to come play and finally feel safe for once in their life. If we don't feel that way about the people in our city, chances are we're a little too distant from them. I find that distance is the enemy of sympathy. 
The reason we don't care about the poor, we don't care about the single mother, or people who are of a different color than us, or about international students, or about elementary school children, is because we don't know any of them. We don't have them in our homes. Brothers and sisters, let us build our homes for the welfare of the city. Verse 5 continues, plant gardens and eat their produce. Be fruitful, build businesses, invest your money, work hard, watch your seeds grow and prosper, be creative, produce art and music and architecture and letters and videos and photos, but plant your gardens for the welfare of the city. The purpose of your business is not merely to turn a profit. The purpose of your work is not merely to feed your family. Christians in exile build businesses that are going to grow and prosper their city. Christians in exile do their work in order to benefit others. Christians in exile produce art and crafts and videos and blogs and all kinds of creative things that drive the people around them closer to the truth. How is the fruit of your labor benefiting the poor? Is your business seeking to help ex-cons re-enter society? How does your photography or your painting or your online content provoke Babylonians to see the lie and to seek the truth? Whatever work you're doing, whatever garden you're tilling, that little patch of soil has been given to you to work and to bring forth fruit so that you can produce it for the welfare of the people of Newberry. Are you being a faithful gardener? Verse 6, Jeremiah says, marry and have children. How many of us envision our marriages and our families as something that's meant to be a blessing to the town where we live? Do we envision our relationship with our spouse as something that's meant to bring God's peace into our community? Husbands, the way that you love and relate to your wife is either filling this community with gentleness and love and respect and sacrifice, or it is filling the corridors of Newberry with vitriol, belittling indifference and harshness. If God has blessed you with a healthy marriage, then you have a responsibility before God to share that marriage with other people. That's why places like LifeBridge exist. They need wise counselors, husbands, wives who have been there, done that, made the mistakes, forgiven one another, healed, know the truth of the gospel, and want to help other people who are so broken they don't even know how to say, I'm sorry. They need someone to come hold their hand and help them. And show them Jesus. Your marriage does not exist just for you and your spouse. It exists for the welfare of Babylon. And what about the children? What about the children that are produced in your family? Children are our opportunity as parents to bless the future. Our families are incubators for the next policeman, 
Husbands, businessmen, mothers, school teachers, governors, statesmen, entrepreneurs, doctors, blue-collar workers. We just had a tragic case in Georgia. A father and son hopped into a truck, chased a black man down. Fathers, it is our responsibility. It is up to us to see that this is the last era. This is the end of that kind of Southern living. That's why we're here. Our families are here to bring that kind of peace to our community. Are we parenting for the welfare of the city? Jeremiah continues, multiply there and do not decrease. The people of God need to multiply, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the city. College Street Baptist Church, guess what? We need to grow. As impossible as that seems in this season where we aren't really supposed to be around each other and we can only get together for a few minutes on Sunday morning, we need to grow, not for our sake, but for the sake of Newberry. Newberry needs a College Street Baptist Church that is overflowing with believers who are consumed with a passion and a zeal for Christ, whose hearts and minds are not captured by idolatry, but with the truth of the gospel. We're flooding the streets and their workplaces and the classrooms and Walmart and wherever we're allowed to go with peace, with hope, with love. College Street needs to multiply, not decrease, because Newberry needs more and more people in this town who are reflecting the glory of God. I was listening to a sermon by Mark Dever while I was at Walmart the other day, and he was making a point that your neighbors need you to be committed church members. Your neighbors need you to know the Bible for their sake. Because when it's time to share the gospel with them, they need you to be ready. Multiply. Do not decrease. And finally, pray. Jeremiah says, pray to the Lord on the city's behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. People want to find an example of young men and women who took Jeremiah's letter to heart. Go read the books of Daniel or Esther. Because they did it. There's an irony to the story of Daniel in the lion's den. If you know the story, uh, Daniel is uh, a rising star in Babylon because he's honoring to God and God is honoring him. And he turns out to be wiser than all of his peers. And he's rising to the top. And so his friends are not super enthused about this. And they decide, we want to get rid of Daniel. But the thing is, Daniel never breaks any laws. And so they decide they have to make a law against prayer because that's the one thing they know Daniel does all the time. And so they go to Darius and he makes a law against prayer. And they burst into his prayer closet and they throw handcuffs on him. And you know what the irony is? Do you want, do you want to know what Daniel's praying for in there? Because Jeremiah said to pray for the welfare of the city. 
They're locking up the man who has been pleading on their behalf. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus Christ, the exile of heaven, came down to this world, destined for destruction, to seek our welfare, to rescue you and I from a city about to be engulfed in flames. He gave up his life on the cross. He sacrificed his own welfare for ours. I wonder whether you know that this morning. Because this is where it all begins. Do you know where you are? Do you know what city you belong to? Are you a citizen of Jerusalem or of Babylon? The city of man or the city of God? Where does your citizenship lie? And why are you here? Do you know that Jesus Christ is not only Savior, but also Lord over your life? Your master. The one who is writing your story, in whose hands your life is held. Every detail. Do you know that? And what are you doing? How is your home, your work, your marriage, your family, your church, your prayer life, seeking the welfare of this city. For God has promised, in its welfare, you will find yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have ensured our final destiny, that no matter what we encounter, we know that it is for our salvation and not for our destruction. Help us to trust you. Help us to be courageous, not seeking to protect our own welfare, but making our lives about seeking the welfare of others, particularly of this city where you've planted this church. Help us to be fruitful and to multiply. In Jesus' name we pray.